Matthew chapter 9, we will be looking at uh, the last part of the chapter and moving into chapter 10. Remember, chapter divisions aren't inspired, so uh, I think the passage actually continues on into chapter 10. Well, here in uh, Matthew 9, the, the verses that are actually concluding Matthew 9 and then begin in Matthew chapter 10 are really an introduction into a very important passage. It's it's Jesus' training passage for the apostles. These verses tell us four important things about Jesus. And so I'm going to take these four important things. We learn about Jesus and kind of elaborate on them, and then we'll finish with uh, some lessons that we can learn from this particular passage. So here's what we learn. Four important things we learn about Jesus. I'll just give them to you right up front, and then we'll uh, talk about them individually. Number one, we learn what Jesus was doing at this time. Number two, what Jesus saw as he moved among the people. And then three, what he instructed his disciples to do about the need that he perceived. And then number four, the action that he took as as a result of that. So let's take these three points one at a time and, and talk about them. Number one, here's my question as we as we look at this passage, what was Jesus doing at this time? What was Jesus doing at this time? Look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Matthew 9, verse 35. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. Matthew 9.35 here tells us what Jesus was doing. And what he was doing, by the way, was exactly what he had been doing all along. Okay, And, and the reason I say that is because when you compare this verse to the verse that comes right before the Sermon on the Mount, the very end of Matthew chapter 4, they're almost exactly the same word for word. The only difference being it, it says... Here he's going throughout all the cities and villages, whereas in in Matthew chapter 4 it says he's going throughout all Galilee. So that's the only difference. So if you compare them, it's showing us Jesus has been doing the same thing all along. Jesus not only had work to do, what we see is he's been doing that work. He'd done it and he's continuing to do it. So what exactly did he do? Well, let's, let's elaborate here. Number one, we see Jesus taught in the synagogues. The, that's the, the Jewish uh, places of worship, if you will. Now, and this is the point at which Jesus always began. Interestingly enough, it's also the things you often see the apostles doing. And why is Jesus going to the synagogues? This is, this is where the religious people would go and, and the Jews of that day would go and worship. Well, one of the reasons Jesus is doing this, we find out here, is Jesus saw that the people were harassed and helpless. It says they were like sheep without a shepherd, and the reason they were helpless is because they didn't know the Bible. Well, they didn't have the whole Bible at that time. They had the Old Testament, though. They didn't know the Old Testament, although they should have known it. They had it for centuries. For at least 400 years, the Old Testament was completed. And although they had it for a long time, they should have known it. Their teacher should have been teaching the Old Testament to them, but sadly they were not. 
that Jesus taught in the synagogues. Number two, we also see what else he was doing is he's preaching the good news. Preaching the good news. Now the ESV uses the word proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. By the way, uh, if you're wondering, is there a difference between preaching and teaching? The answer is yes, there is. Now they are, there, is, there is some overlap there. Pre- so let me explain it this way. Preaching, first of all, is not the same thing as teaching. Teaching is, is uh, just simply giving instruction. It has to do with the content. Right? Whereas preaching or proclaiming, the Greek word caruso here, it's, it's going beyond the instruction. Yes, it, it will contain instruction, but it's more than instruction. It, it's proclamation. It's heralding. It's announcing what listeners need to hear and then how listeners need to respond to that proclamation. So preaching is the point at which teaching actually becomes personal, if you will. In a way, it's kind of like this. Preaching is what a king's herald does. Now, we don't have a king here, do we? But in the old days, kings would send out their heralds or their messengers out into the countryside and villages and cities, and they would tell exactly what the king told them to say. They would give the king's message to the country. That's what a preacher does. When you're proclaiming and preaching... That's exactly what good preachers do. They proclaim the king's message. In this case, it's King Jesus' message. In this case, we have the King Jesus himself doing the proclaiming here, doing the preaching. He's heralding, he's speaking for the king, making his decrees known. What was the proclamation about? What was the message about? He's proclaiming about this kingdom, the kingdom of God and the anointed king, in this case, King Jesus. So this decree was truly good news, wasn't it? Whenever we hear about King Jesus, that's truly good news. You hear about the kingdom, that's good news. So we see Jesus taught in the synagogues. Number two, Jesus preached the good news. Number three, what else did he do? Jesus healed diseases. He healed diseases. He had the power to do so. His power to heal diseases by the way, remember we, we talked about this earlier, I think even last week, was one of those evidences showing that he was the Messiah. He was the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. The one that was proclaimed many, many times throughout the Old Testament. But the healing of physical disease is linked to and, and actually illustrates something that's far more important, which is the healing of sin. What we need most is not the healing of our physical ailments, but what we need most is healing of our sins. We need to be reconciled with God, which is exactly what Jesus accomplishes for us. So this is the really good news of the kingdom. So that's what Jesus was doing. Our second question here is, what need did Jesus see? What need did Jesus see? Look at verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Some interesting words here. I encourage you to kind of study this a little deeper, dig deeper, if you will. But we already saw in verse 35, Jesus was moving throughout Galilee, teaching and 
and healing people. And he was what, what, when he saw the people. The Bible says he was he was moved by their pitiful condition. He had compassion on them. Verse thirty six says he had compassion for them because the, the very reason they were like shepherdless sheep, uncared for and completely helpless. Oh, the animal rights people would have a heyday with this, wouldn't they? Well, this verse <laughs> uh, reminds me of a uh, of a of a time which uh, Heidi, you, were, you you might remember the time we were actually out turkey hunting, and we were wandering around in, in the in some farmer's paddock trying to find some turkeys to shoot so we could we could uh, eat them. And in the process of wandering around the paddock, we we actually found a sheep that uh, t- typical of sheep. They do dumb things, don't they? Uh, the, the sheep had its head stuck in the fence. It was actually a gate. Um, probably doing the typical sheep thing, thinking the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. So I'm going to stick my head through here, and I'm going to eat the grass on the other side of the fence, not thinking, how am I going to get my head out? I don't know how long that sheep had been there, but it had tried, it tried vigorously to get away as we approached. Didn't, didn't like our presence there. So it's like banging its head against the gate, trying to get out. It gets stuck. Well, that's the way sheep are. I mean, that, that sheep would have probably, I'm, I'm assuming, would have died if we had not come up and helped it get away. We were able to, to help it get its head out so it could wander off to the other sheep and continue eating and drinking its merrily way. But that, that's a good example, though, the way sheep are. They need a good shepherd. They they're, they're not, they don't do so well all by themselves. They do those kind of silly things like that. And God compares us to sheep, and since God does compare sheep, then we also need a good shepherd. So praise God, we do have a good shepherd, and his name is Jesus Christ. I want you to see how Jesus reveals himself here in John chapter 10. It's on the screen for you. John 10 verse 11 says, this is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. In Jesus' day, just so you understand why, I'm, why, I, why I've bothered to read John chapter 10, you need to understand something. That in, in Jesus' day, why is Jesus seeing the sheep of Israel, so to speak, as uh, leaderless, as shepherdless, and harassed, and, and uncared for. Well, in Jesus' day, the religious leaders, what they were doing was burdening the people with legalistic niceties, if you will. Instead of actually seeking them out, they, instead of wooing them with the gospel of God's grace, they were, they were putting on them things that were actually extra-biblical things. They were encumbering the people with laws, I mean, for example, Jesus, throughout the book of Matthew, talks about these things, laws on the Sabbath and fast, clothing and ties, and, and, and the, the issue goes on and on and on. 
they looked down on them. They, they didn't want to be associated with sinners, quite happily to, to stand off at a distance and preach repentance to them, but there's no way they would come in contact with sinners. By contrast, Jesus saw these people as helpless sheep, and he also see that there was a great harvest that needed to be gathered in. But there was a, a problem here, though. The problem is the harvest was great, but there were few workers. So what does Jesus do? He, tells, he actually tells his disciples what they were to do about this huge harvest, this huge need. And that's, that's our next point we see here. What did Jesus instruct his disciples to do about the need? What did he instruct his disciples to do about the need? Look at verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus sees the need. He sees the people. He has compassion and pity on them. And Jesus' passion for people's needs actually causes him to do something. In fact, the, the word pray there is actually an imperative in the Greek language. It's a command. It's not an option. He's commanding his disciples and, and we as Jesus' disciples today to continue to pray for workers to go out into the harvest. Now at this point, it's very easy for us to think, well, <clears throat> okay, there's a full stop and we've come to another chapter certainly the uh, that's where the story ends. We might think we've reached the end of the lessons uh, and the end of the story of this particular passage. I'll remind you that chapter divisions are not inspired. I actually think the story continues on. So let's, let's, let's continue on into chapter 10 here and find out what action did Jesus take. He takes action here, but what action did he take? Look at verse 1, because... You notice, appropriately, in the ESV, verse 1 of chapter 10 starts with an and. That's a joining word, which tells you it's joining it up to the previous section there. So notice it's, and Jesus, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Now, I think Jesus is calling out 12 amongst a greater group of disciples. Remember, people have been following Jesus around for a while now. Uh, certainly, there's many other people who love to hear Jesus preach and uh, certainly love to heal him, see Him healing people and doing those miracles. But out of the midst of the, the group of disciples, Jesus sees 12 whom He's going to call out. So this is kind of like the the commissioning service, the ordination service, if you will, for these ministers of Christ's gospel. So King Jesus took the very men whom he had commanded to pray for more workers in the harvest. And he's urging them. And after praying, to, and then, and then he, what he does is he thrusts them out into the harvest. The harvest, by the way, is referring to people, of course. So that's what Jesus did. And we see the, the names of the twelve apostles here, starting in verse 2. 
verse 2. By the way, most, it's interesting, most of these guys, we don't know a whole lot about them, frankly. Uh, we, we know the, the inner circle that Jesus had, of course, Peter, James, and John. Uh, we know the most about them. But, but you, you notice a lot of these other guys, uh, you probably couldn't even, I mean, could you write a book on any of these other guys? <laughs> It'd be hard to do, wouldn't it? There's not a whole lot of information on them, frankly. But let's, let's look at these men that, that Jesus calls to do, go out into the harvest. Starting in verse 2. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother. James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew the tax collector. James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. It's interesting that uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, this is the first time where he mentions the twelve, because before that, apparently, there's just a bigger group following Christ. The other interesting thing about Matthew is Matthew's unique in that he is the only one who introduces the twelve apostles here in in six pairs. Did you notice how how these guys were broken up into actually six groups, six pairs, and they're connected by the word and? If you actually compare Matthew's gospel, which I did earlier last week, uh, with the other gospel writers, they're, they're, they're different. They're all a little different. Matthew's joining them up in pairs. Now, I was trying to think of, okay, why did he do this? Well, I'm not really sure why he did this, but interestingly enough, I think it's Mark's gospel says that Christ sent them out in in pairs, two by two. So maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe the connection why Matthew's joining them up like this is because this is how Jesus joined them out when he sent them out to do their work. The first group, the first pair is, well, at least in our translation here, it says Simon and Andrew. Simon is uh, another word for Peter. Peter, by the way, or Simon, is always placed first in the list of the apostles, uh, which I think must reflect the fact that he was he was a leader uh, amongst the group. Somebody uh, somebody jokingly called Peter the the apostle with a uh, a shoe shaped mouth, constantly sticking his foot in his mouth, wasn't he? But uh, nevertheless, he, of course, he had his faults and weaknesses, just like you and I do. But God used him. Praise the Lord. But what we do know is that, uh, yes, he was a true leader, but he's not over the others. Of course, there's only one master, and that master is Jesus Christ, King Jesus. But Peter was, shall we say, first among equals. Peter and his brother Andrew here were uh, fishermen. If you remember, Jesus actually called Peter and Andrew when, uh, when they were there mending their nets, and they were... Uh, also probably followers of John the Baptist before Jesus actually called them. And uh, we don't know a whole lot about Andrew, uh, Peter's brother. Uh, poor guy, he's, he's the younger brother of Peter apparently. And so, uh, but, but what we do know is he, he's constantly bringing people to John, the, the prophet uh, John the Baptist, and as well as to Jesus. And of course he's greatly responsible for bringing Peter to Christ. Jesus 
gave Simon the name Cephas, which is an Aramaic word that's actually equivalent of Peter in the Greek language. And what it means is rock. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to be called rock by Jesus? That'd be great. Well, how did Peter's life end? How did Peter's life end? The early church history books indicate that Peter was crucified. But before he died, uh, it was interesting to learn about this, that Peter was actually forced to watch the crucifixion of his wife. Clement says, uh, Clement's an early church father, he says that Peter called to her saying, Remember the Lord. When it was Peter's turn to die and to be nailed to the cross, he pleaded to be crucified upside down because he firmly believed he was not worthy enough to die like his Lord Jesus Christ died. And so instead they nailed him to the cross with his head downward. So he died upside down. The second pair in our passage here is James and John, also brothers. Notice the Bible says they were the sons of Mr. Zebedee. Mr. Zebedee was a a fairly well-to-do man. He had several employees. So we see that these guys were brothers, since they're the sons of Mr. Zebedee. And and these guys were also fishermen. Interestingly enough, uh, the, the, the first two pairs in our passage here were fishermen. These weren't your... These were not your elite of society. Jesus is purposely going to just your common, everyday man. James was the first, by the way, of the apostles to be martyred. He was killed by King Herod. We know uh, quite a bit about John. John's probably the more uh, prominent uh, between James and John. He appears frequently in the New Testament. He was, of course, responsible for five of your of our New Testament books. And John's the only apostle to actually make it to live to, a, to an old age. Although he had to suffer greatly himself as well. Remember, he was exiled to the island of Patmos to do hard labor and eventually died on the island of Patmos. The third pair of our passage says here is Philip and Bartholomew. Philip and... Bartholomew. Tradition tells us that Philip gave his life as a martyr for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's reported that he was stripped naked, hung upside down by his feet, and pierced with sharp stakes in his ankles and his thighs, which caused him to slowly bleed to death. Like I said, we don't know a whole lot about these guys. Uh, Bartholomew is uh, mentioned... uh, as another name in one of the other Gospels, by the name of Nathaniel. Uh, as far as we know, he came from Cana in, in the region of Galilee, and uh, he was responsible for bringing his friend Philip to the Lord. So they were, they were close friends. The fourth pair is Thomas and Matthew. Thomas is also called Didymus. It was quite common at this time, apparently, to have uh, more than one name, as you can see. Uh, Didymus means a twin. He appears only in the Gospel of John. Sadly, he, as you, you, the way we often think of poor old Thomas is, he, what's his nickname? Doubting Thomas, right? The poor guy. Um, and, and he's often called Doubting Thomas because there was a point where he did doubt. and You can read about that incident in John chapter 20. 
But uh, he was also known as being very courageous. Uh, you can also read about that, that particular story. He, he's the one, Jesus wants to go to Jerusalem, and, and Thomas is the one encouraging all the other guys, hey, let's go to Jerusalem and die. You know, <laughs> he, he's kind of a pessimist. He gets often called a pessimist, but, but he's very courageous nevertheless. Tradition tells us that Thomas preached going as far away as India. And remember, this is before the age of trains and airplanes and, and cars. In fact, as I was doing some reading, I found out there is a, a church called the Mar Toma. Almost sounds like Thomas, doesn't it? The Mar Toma Church, which still exists in southwest India, tracing its origin to Thomas himself. Uh, he is said to have died from a spear. Actually, that spear was thrust through him. Interestingly enough, Matthew himself here describes himself as a tax collector. Remember, that was, that was, <laughs> that was not something to be proud of. Tax collectors were traitors of their country. And so, for him to, to uh, humble himself and actually put it in writing for everyone to see, hey, I was a tax collector, was, is, a, is a work of God, I must say. He's calling attention to this dishonorable business, this traitorous job that he, he had occupied before Jesus called him. So his words are a humble acknowledgement of God's grace in his life. The fifth pair is James and Thaddeus. I want you to notice in our passage here, it actually uses the word Alpheus. That word Alpheus is actually helping us to distinguish uh, this particular James from the other James that was mentioned. We don't know much about this particular uh, James but after 2,000 year, years, uh, the, the one thing we do know is he still remains obscure. We don't know a single word he spoke or a single thing he actually did. Uh, the early church fathers claimed he preached in Persia, which is modern-day Iran, and was crucified as a martyr for the gospel. Thaddeus, as far as I understand, is probably Jude, the same Jude who wrote the book in our Bible called Jude. Uh, he's also otherwise called Judas, but he is not Judas Iscariot. Okay, Not the same one. Uh, as I said, he, he does seem to be the author of the book of Jude. Tradition tells us he won the king of Syria to the Lord, and as a result of that, the conversion ended up throwing the land into, into such a turmoil that the king's nephew had Thaddeus beat to death with a club. The sixth pair is Simon and Judas. The Bible calls Simon a zealot. Did you notice that? Simon the zealot. If you don't know anything about them, well, listen closely. Zealots were basically insurrectionists who fought against the Romans. In fact, uh, if you've ever heard of Masada, uh, remember the Romans came and invaded uh, Israel, eventually destroyed Jerusalem. Uh, the zealots ended up fleeing to a, a fortress up on a very high plateau called Masada, and, and those zealots there eventually ended up committing suicide as the Romans were ready to come in and kill them. 
So they were a party of nationalists, and, and therefore Simon the Zealot here is probably a reference to Simon's past political associations. The nickname also distinguishes him, of course, from Simon Peter's, not, not the same Simon. This is Simon the Zealot. And then we have last here is Judas. And, and funny enough, Judas comes last on all the lists that are in your Bible. This is the disciple who betrayed Jesus Christ. His second name, Iscariot, was probably a place name. So uh, uh, where exactly Iscariot is, I'm not exactly sure, but, but it, it, the meaning was one that he was from Kiriath, a town that was somewhere in Judah. Judas was the treasurer of the group. Uh, the Bible says that he was not honest. He was actually a thief. He was stealing out of their, their money bag, so to speak. And you can read the account of Jesus, or sorry, Jesus, or sorry, Judas' betrayal of Jesus in Matthew chapter 26. And then after he betrayed Jesus, remember, uh, he ended up regretting that. And then he goes and commits suicide in Matthew chapter 27. So this is our list of the apostles that Christ chose. He ordained them. He commissioned them. And they are, according to elsewhere in Scripture, they're the foundation of the church. The church of Jesus Christ. And when we get to heaven, if, we, if you go to heaven, you'll find all of them, except for Judas, you'll find their names on the wall of the new Jerusalem. And these are the men whom Christ called. So what lessons can we learn from this story? One, our first lesson I think we can learn is that God chooses the humble, the meek, the lowly, and the weak to accomplish His purposes. It's significant to me that we don't know hardly anything about most of these men. In fact, as we heard earlier, one of the guys, we don't know a single thing he said or a single thing he actually did. And why is that? God wanted the whole world to know the source of the power. These men, the book of Acts says, were accused of turning the world upside down, when in reality they were attempting to turn it right side up. But what was the source of that power? It certainly wasn't not those men. It is the truth of God and the power of God in the man of God that changes the world. I love that saying. I don't know where it comes from. It's the truth of God and the power of God in the man of God that changes the world. So the power's in the Word of God, the Bible. It's not in us. Praise God. Hebrews 4 says that the Word of God, the Bible, is alive. Unlike other books, it's alive, it's sharp, it's powerful. It can pierce inside people, dividing us. So Jesus deliberately selected the weak of the society, men like fishermen, oh, and heaven forbid, tax collectors, to accomplish his purposes. Praise God, he continues to do so with you and me. Chooses the weak of this world to confound the mighty. And so if Jesus used disciples such as these, the good news is he can use you just like he did with these men. Now, he's not going to use you to write scripture, but nevertheless, he can use you to accomplish his purposes. He can draw you into a diverse band of people that scripture calls the church. But remember, 
need to remember something here, is that these disciples trusted Jesus Christ, and they obeyed Him and followed Him. They took up their cross and followed Christ, whatever that cross might be. And so we need to do the same. Number two, what other lesson can we learn? Our best response to those who hate or slander us is merely to keep doing the right thing. Just keep doing the right thing. And that's exactly what Jesus does here in our passage. Remember, last week we ended with the Pharisees attacking Jesus, speaking against Jesus, and saying, hey, you're casting out these these demons out of the people by the power of Satan. Whoa! They're accusing Jesus of doing these miracles through the power of Satan. That's horrible slander, isn't it? But Jesus, what does He do? As a result of of receiving that slander up there in, in verse 34, does He quit and say, Oh, woe is me. Everyone's against me. I'm, I'm just going to stop doing the right thing. No, he just keeps doing the right thing. Verse 34 tells us, yeah, that he received some rather nasty slander and hate. Hey, you're casting out demons by the ruler of the demons. But then we see Jesus actually answers his critics by just to keep doing the right thing. Continuing to do good, teaching, preaching, healing. And this, I think, is an important lesson for us to learn as well. When people slander you, people hate you because you are doing the right thing, do what Romans chapter 12 says. You respond to evil by doing good. You overcome evil with good. The third lesson we can learn is the church has only one authentic mission. church only has one authentic mission. By the way, My definition of the church is all saved believers. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you're part of the church. If you're part of the church, the church only has one authentic mission. And that mission is the one that was assigned by God the Father to Jesus Christ and is to be carried on by His disciples. That's the mission. The same mission that God gave to Jesus Christ, and then Christ gives to His disciples, the apostles give to us, is the same one you have. And so as Christ's disciples, we're not to establish our own mission. We're not to just come up with our own ideas of of what is the mission of the church. No. That mission has been given to us by God. We know what it is, and we're to carry that on. We can't shirk it. We can't change it. We can't decide, I don't like that. I want to do something that, that's not going to get me martyred. No. <laughs> and so in, in order to conduct that mission, Jesus, what he does here is he's passing on his authority to, to the church. And we're, we're going to see that probably in, in more detail later on in Matthew chapter 28, aren't we? We're, Matthew 28, verse 19 says that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. That's the mission. That's the one authentic mission. Number four, the church's mission is universal. What we see here is it is to everyone with need. Everyone with need. 
you look at verse 35 in our passage here, we, there, there's, a, there's a little word that I don't want you to overlook. It's the word all. The importance of the word all must be recognized. The model that Jesus gives us here portrays a ministry to everyone in need. It's everyone in need. Notice in verse 35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. All of them. That's the model that Jesus is portraying for us. So he's going to both the physically and the spiritually needy. All the villages, the synagogues, everywhere he can go proclaiming and healing. For decades, I I have to tell you this, for decades there's, there's been a a particular debate going on in mission circles. And and the debate is over, should we uh, only evangelize, or some have even gone so far as with the social gospel and said, should we only deal with people's social concerns? And then there's the debate that goes on, well, okay, yeah, all right. Is it okay to join evangelism and social, social concerns together? Well, that debate's been going on a long, long time. I actually think that that debate is uh, bad thinking, wrong thinking. Uh, in fact, we, we discussed this several weeks ago in church history class. Should, should social concerns and evangelism be an either-or or a both-and issue? Well, the conclusion I've clearly come to, according to Jesus' ministry, is social concerns and evangelism is a both and they it should be both particularly in uh, third world countries where people are very poor um, using social concerns is a great way to minister to those people where they where they'll they'll listen to the gospel right so it's not a either or it's a both and issue in other words what i'm trying to say is this all christians should be ministering to everyone's physical and spiritual needs both Uh, somebody said you know some people don't care what you know until they know that you care so don't say hey you know uh you know sometimes you sometimes you don't have money to give to people or you you may not have time like you wanted to to help people Sometimes you might have to do what Peter did. Remember Peter uh, in the book of Acts says, Hey, gold and silver I don't have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Christ. (laughs) Right? Sometimes we have to be that way. But all Christians should be ministering to everyone's physical and spiritual needs. Really, the, the mission's incomplete if we're out of balance here between those two. We need to do both. Number five. Fifth lesson is this, that God heals our animosity toward one another. The church is an amazing organism. It's it's a real, live organism. Church is not a building, okay? Church is not a denomination. Church is people, (laughs) right? If you're not convinced of that, I'll be able to talk to you about that later. But what, what what is Christ doing here? He's taking diverse people... And, and bringing them together. And it's awesome to see how Jesus actually chose a traitor, which was a tax collector, and a zealot, the, the insurrectionist revolutionary, and brings these guys, and, and they can actually work together. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I mean, the, the zealot was, he, you know, he's the kind of guy who is, he's the, he's the one who wants to kill the tax collector. And may have done in his pre-salvation life 
But Jesus brought them together and healed their natural animosity toward one another. Only Jesus can do that. Well, what is that doing? Well, that shows the power of God's grace, doesn't it? God can heal our animosity. We, we see this throughout the New Testament where, where, where the church is, it's not Jew or Greek, it's not male or female, it's we're all one under Christ. To give a modern day illustration of this, in case you're not getting the point, it, this would be like God's grace working in the life of a, of a Jew living in Israel and some terrorist in, in the Hamas organization actually coming together and being good friends and working together. Imagine that. Instead of the terrorists wanting to blow up the Jew, they're actually loving each other and loving one another. Well, that's what's going on here. we got a former terrorist working with, with, with a traitor, a tax collector. Well, that shows God's grace, doesn't it? God heals our animosity. And only God can do that. Number six. Missions should be motivated by compassion for lost people. Should be. Your, your, your mission in life should be motivated by compassion for lost people. That's not the only motivation, but that is certainly one of the ones that Jesus shows us here. Jesus wasn't motivated by, by hatred for sinners. Instead, he's motivated by love for the unsaved. He looks at these people, and what does he see? He's compassion for them because they're helpless. We too need to love people and even love cultures of other people as, as hold on a second, as long as the culture's not unbiblical. Right? There, is, there is certain parts of various cultures around the world that's clearly unbiblical, right? Okay? We shouldn't love that, but whenever you come in contact with someone of another race or another culture, right, love that culture as long as it's not unbiblical. Right? Nothing wrong with that. Jesus saw people's helplessness, and what, what, what happened with him was his heart went out to those people. And so the same love and compassion needs to motivate our ministry today. We need to be motivated by compassion for people. Number seven, God's, God's harvest demands workers. God has a great harvest, and it, and it demands workers. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful. It's ripe for the, the picking, so to speak. And in verse 37, we actually see Jesus involving the disciples in his mission for the first time here. Because before this, Jesus is preaching, teaching, healing, you know, traveling around, and, and they're just kind of following around, right? Now, now he's involving them in the mission. And he, he's going to send them out into the harvest field. Why? Well, why is he doing this? Because the harvest is great. It's ripe. And guess what? God's harvest is just as ripe today as it was when Jesus said this some 2,000 years ago. The harvest field is just as ripe. And every Christian is called to follow the mission guidelines of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which says that we are to go into our Jerusalem. In this case, that's where you live. Right? But it goes on to say, then we spread out into our Judea, the, the regions around where you live, and then of course, you go into the uttermost part of the world. Number eight. Our eighth lesson is this. In relation to mission, our task, your task, is to pray. It's to pray. That's your first thing 
you need to think of, the first thing you need to do. The mission, by the way, of course, is clearly God's work, not yours. God commands us here to be involved in the mission by praying for workers to go out into the harvest and reap the harvest. God has a harvest. He wants workers to go out and gather in that harvest. Sadly, what happens, though, is often ministry becomes human-centered, man-centered, and and even market-driven, if you will. Business practices and philosophies have entered the church, sadly. And in the process, the Lord is, is often left out of His church. Somebody has said the church moves forward on its knees. May I remind you, your first responsibility here is, you see this a great need? Pray about it. Pray about it. You say, why should I pray? Well, one reason is because God commands you to pray. This isn't an option. It's an imperative. But also, number two, prayer also takes us to the source of the power that makes for successful ministry. I mean, what are you going to do? Are you going to try to do it in your own strength? Well, that's going to fail. No, you need God's power to pray for it. Well, my friends, do you want to see God glorified? I hope you do. God be glorified. Well, first thing Jesus tells us to do here is to pray for more Christian workers to go out into the harvest and make disciples for Christ. May God be glorified. 